Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 110 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. Today I have the privilege to talk with Leanne. Leanne is Luke's mom. I have tried practicing pronouncing it the way she does in her French-Canadian way, but I cannot get it right, so I am just going to have to go with Luke's mom. You will hear her say it in a lovely way in the interview that I just cannot replicate. So yes, I yet again have another Canadian mom on the show. Uh, This one, though, is from Manitoba, from Winnipeg. My previous Canadian guests have either been from Ontario or uh, Alberta, so we are kind of going in the middle to go with Manitoba. Leanne's story is really still quite fresh as she just lost her son to cancer during the COVID pandemic. She talks about losing him and about going through illness and then grief during the pandemic as well. She also really wants to focus so much now on continuing to live and learning how to live after loss and learning how to still have fun in her life after loss because she knows that's what her little boy would still want for her. I do want to take a second here to talk about an upcoming event. So we all know that Christmas and Thanksgiving are coming up. For my Canadian listeners, yes, Thanksgiving has already passed, but Christmas is still coming for you. On Tuesday, November 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Gwen and I are going to do a very special live stream that will talk about getting through the holidays, surviving the holidays, preparing for the holidays, just anything kind of holiday related. So feel free to join in. Please, you can come on Facebook or on my YouTube channel. You can actually also join us on Gwen's Facebook page. So she is on yourgriefguide.com. So under the Grief Guide Facebook page, you can find it there as well. Just bring any questions you have, but I'm certain we'll have enough to talk about even if you don't bring questions. So tune in at 8 p.m. on that Tuesday, November 16th. If you don't catch us live, though, know that we will be just broadcasting it at the normal time on Thursday, November 18th, so you can be sure to listen there. You just won't have time to ask some questions. Now, I want to go ahead, though, and get to that interview, so I hope you enjoy listening to Leanne. Thank you so much, Leanne, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast and talk about your son, Luke. Thanks, Marcy, for having me. Yes. Well, why don't you start out and just tell us all about Luke? Because I want to hear all about him. And this, just to put this out there, this Luke is spelled differently than my last Luke. So it is going to be still fine in my title because you are L-U-C instead of L-U-K-E. So... Yes, and uh, Luke uh, is actually, for me, his name is Luc, um, mm-hmm. so we're French-Canadian, so it's spelled with a C because it's the Francophone spelling. So I say Luc, you say Luke, and that is perfectly fine. <laughs> Luc is our uh, firstborn. He was born on May 8th, 2010, so just shy of 11 years old when he passed. You know, like with firstborns for us, he was also the first grandson, so grandchild, I should say, on both sides. So definitely the uh, the pride of the family and uh, special place in, in the heart of the grandparents, for sure. Mm-hmm. We also have two daughters, Stella and Olivia, um, they're eight and four. And I'll talk a little bit more about Olivia and sort of the special uh, nature of her arrival and, and her place in, in Luke's story. 
you know, Nick was, uh, like a lot of boys, very sporty. You know, I remember his first word was actually ball. And in French, it's So, you know, it kind of goes both ways. But loved all sports. And like a good Canadian boy, he loved hockey. He loved playing hockey. He loved watching hockey, playing soccer, playing baseball. You know, and I think at the root of it all was he really loved being on a team. He loved team sports. Mm-hmm. He loved being with other kids. He loved the camaraderie that came with being on the team. You know, here in the prairies, you know, we are in an urban center, but we have access to a lot of green space, uh, not that far away. So very outdoorsy. You know, he loved collecting sticks. I remember when he was a kid, he would just take piles of wood and stack them up and then take them apart and make another pile of wood. And, you know, he loved um, being around the campfire and playing, chopping wood as he got older and helping his dad stoke the fire. Loved nature, loved being at the beach, loved throwing rocks, loved collecting rocks, biking, making sandcastles. Yes, we have a lot of fond memories of being at the cabin at the lake and, and being able to just spend some time outdoors as a family. You know, as a, as a firstborn, which I'm also a firstborn, so we share some similar traits. You know, I, I always found him to be a little bit more on the cautious side. I was never, as a child, I was never worried about him flinging himself off of furniture or climbing a little too high on the play structure. He was always, you know, very careful. Like to follow rules, you know, he was very rule-oriented, which, you know, I am as well, and always concerned about doing the right thing. And so, you know, that all made him a very uh, polite child, very friendly, but also, you know, a little bit on the quieter side. You know, he was a bit shyer. He certainly wasn't the one that was always standing out in the crowd. Um, He preferred to be on the sidelines, to be, I call him the cheerleader. When he was on those teams, he was always on the sidelines, kind of supporting all the other players, encouraging them, cheering them on. But, you know, didn't like to be in the spotlight. Didn't like a lot of attention, which was challenging for him as he got older and uh, his illness took a big front page for our family and, and sure. did put it on him. I say he's quiet. I remember one story, you know, during the pandemic, of course, like with everybody, we were trying to do everything on Zoom. And so I had him in piano lessons and his uh, sister Stella in piano lessons. And I would just kind of listen in a little bit to his Zoom lesson with his teacher. And, you know, she'd ask all sorts of questions trying to engage him. And, you know, the answers were always, yep, good. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Nodding. <laughs> Just, you know, a, a boy of a few words at times. As this sounds like my life sort of as a pediatrician sometimes, you yeah. know, sometimes I go into a room and they just will chatter, chatter, chatter and never stop. And then other times I keep asking them questions. How's school? Good. What's mm-hmm. your favorite thing about school? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> like one word answers to everything. So I totally get that. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, whereas his sisters are just nonstop, you know, his sister would be in a piano lesson and I'd be kind of trying to get her to stop talking and actually, you know, play do the a little piano, bit. yeah. <laughs> um, despite being quiet, he was certainly comfortable with people. He liked meeting new people. He liked, he felt comfortable with adults because of his illness. He spent a lot of time with adults, uh, with healthcare practitioners. He was never intimidated by that setting. He was never afraid or shy. He just wasn't the most talkative, but certainly always very kind and very polite. And, you know, we've had cards and staff mention how good of a boy he was, how nice he was. Yeah. So I wouldn't cry, but. No, that's okay. That's okay. I cry all the time. I cry pretty much every day. Yeah, me too. But he was a very good boy. You know, that's a common message that we got after he passed. How kind and sweet and and nice he was. As I said, he was a big cheerleader. So we loved the team. And with that, it made him a very welcoming person. You know, he was very inclusive. Always wanted to meet new friends. He never wanted to exclude anybody. So, um, a lot of the kids in school uh, mentioned that how special he made them feel. Oh, and that's such a great thing. You know, when your kids make other kids feel special, you can't ask for more than that. 
he was sick on and off for four years. And so these kids kind of knew his story and, and were in and out of his life as he was doing this. And, you know, they'd send cards and they did pictures and, you know, they call him a hero. He didn't want to be a hero, you know? No, he didn't. He just wanted to be himself. He was very humble that way. Like I said, he didn't like a lot of fuss. He didn't like a lot of attention, you know? He was just himself and he didn't know how else to be. So for someone to call him a hero, that, that's not what he was trying to do. He just wanted to be a regular kid. Exactly. He was just trying to get through it. You know, this one is a bit of a, I had to mention it because it was such a beautiful sentiment. But, you know, he was 10 when he passed. And, and so kids at the age of 10 were maturing. And, you know, I encouraged uh, his friend's moms to, if his friends wanted to share anything or write a letter or a card for him or something, that they would really like that. And uh, one of his friends actually wrote him a poem, which I thought was just so sweet. Oh, yeah. And uh, it really sums up what he was like. Even in the poem, he said, even when I drop the ball, you never get mad at me. I just wish you could get mad at me one more time. And I just thought that was so sweet. Like, you know, that's the stuff that cuts deep. Thinking of those young boys and what they have lost in a friend. Seeing those words and, and getting that love from the little boy. And letting them be vulnerable and, and the insight and the maturity that that shows. It's just so beautiful and so heart-wrenching at the same time. Yeah. On a lighter note, <laughs> no, he did love to laugh, right? He loved telling jokes, <laughs> joke books, and he kind of, much as he didn't love the spotlight, you know, at home, he, he loved getting center stage and tell us some jokes to do pranks because his favorite movie alone and he'd even say I know it's not even Christmas yet but can we watch it again <laughs> light-hearted sort of happy child as I said even though he had to deal with a lot again sort of maybe firstborn trade or maybe a little bit of myself in there you know he is he was very organized as a kid he loved having everything kind of in its place he took a lot of pride in his bedroom and he'd have everything organized and I took photos, actually, of his room after he passed, just because it really showcased how his things were always neatly placed. He had a section for all his Nerf guns and all of his toys like that. And then he had all of his uh, Winnipeg gear all out on display. He was a big fan. I guess that he loved hockey, so he was a big fan of the Winnipeg Jets. And the whole room was sort of Jets-themed, and, and he really loved that about it. And, uh, you know, another thing he got to do, which was a really special opportunity for him here in Manitoba, when it's not COVID, they have a camp for kids with cancer. And so he was able to attend three years in a row. And he loved camp, being with other kids. So that really appealed to his nature. Uh, he was able to go swimming and wall climb, play, you know, at the beach and make all sorts of new friends. And... He made friends easily. You know, as I said, I put him on the bus and he didn't know anybody on that bus and he didn't care. You know, he just wanted to get there. And said earlier, his littlest sister, Olivia, certainly had a special role in our family. I had always thought I'd have kids. So I had Luke and I had Stella and our little family was complete. And in 2016, I actually ended up getting pregnant in the fall. And coincidentally enough, that was one month before he was first diagnosed. So I've thought about that a lot, about the timing of that and how grateful I am now to have her. I always have been, but to have her in our life as a new addition to the family. Um, and, and she came really when we needed that. The we needed a little gift, right? Yeah, that certainly resulted in the short term for some challenges for us. You know, I was pregnant. We had a son who was uh, going through treatment. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, about kind of the beginning and his diagnosis and what happened? Sure. In 2016, uh, in the fall, but shortly right after I found out I was expecting, you know, developed uh, a few fevers, colds, infections of some sort, you know, with young kids that, as you know, <laughs> pretty yeah. common, especially mm -hmm. in that time. But, you know, they were kind of lingering longer than normal for him. 
So we take him into the walk-in clinic or to the urgent care and the physicians tended to just sort of say it's a viral thing, you know, it'll pass, it's going around. And so we would just kind of, okay, just keep going with life. But then there were some things that just were atypical for viruses in our house. I noticed that on the back of his head, um, his lymph node was swollen. He'd have kind of big bumps on the back of his head. Yeah. And tired, really, really tired. You know, one day I remember I went to pick him up at his daycare and he was sleeping in the gym in the corner while everybody's playing. He just fell asleep. He was six at the time. And that just seemed off to me, you know. Yeah, for sure. At that age. And then one night he came into our room in the middle of the night and said, my legs really hurt. And again, I thought, you know, maybe it's a flu, body aches, you know, stuff like that. His hips were hurting, his legs were hurting. I, I kept him with my parents and I went to work. But my mom kept saying, you know, it's, it's not getting better. His legs really hurt. And now he can't really go up the stairs. So I thought, you know what, I better call our doctor, you know, yeah. of this business. And um, I explained what was going on. And the nurse basically said, can you be here in like half an hour? Then your heart starts racing, right? Because you think, oh, my gosh. Maybe this is a big deal, right? I certainly tried to parent from a place of not assuming the worst case scenario all the time, right? And I tried to trust. But then at that point, my instincts were telling me maybe this is really serious. So I just dropped everything, took him to the pediatrician, and she took a look at him and said, I think you should go for blood work right now. And we're closed. So uh, you have to go to the children's hospital and get blood work done. So just a whirlwind, um, took the blood work, went home, and then we got a call from the ER doctor at about 11 o'clock at night, said, I think you should come in. So at that point, uh, the ER doctor took us in, and I just remember he put us in a room, and then he closed the curtain to the outside hallway and asked me to sit down. And so that's when I knew this. So he was diagnosed with ALL, which is the acute leukemia, which is a childhood leukemia and the most common childhood leukemia, you know, and probably the most prevalent childhood cancers that are out there. But, you know, they don't mess around with that. And so we were admitted right away, yeah. uh, started, he had a, a pick put in the next day, he had a biopsy done. You know, I later found out that the pain in his hips and in his legs where his bone marrow was just full, 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 98% cancer cells. So there was no room, you know, he was just filling up quickly. But right away, met, went, met with the oncologist who became our oncologist for several years. And she was very, very uh, reassuring, you know, it's a... Right. Uh, do you want, if you're going to get a childhood cancer, this is the one you want to get. Yep. So uh, unfortunately for us, this was three days before Christmas. We spent Christmas at the hospital um, doing chemotherapy. But, you know, at that point, it didn't really matter. You know, Christmas, right. just not important. Even Luke, again, you know, I, I kind of will touch on this, you know, his resiliency and positive attitude was already coming out at an early age there. You know, he didn't complain about missing Christmas. He, you know, just figured, okay, let's just get to work and let's get better. And we tried to make it fun. And, you know, Christmas in the hospital might seem pretty grim, but in the children's hospital, there's a lot of greatness in it. You know, mm -hmm. that came, again, pre-COVID, all these things that maybe don't happen right now, but Santa came and we just got gifts and gifts and gifts from yeah. We try to, I mean, I've obviously worked in a children's hospital through many Christmases and you do try to make it as special as you possibly can because yeah. It, it yeah. you don't want it to be like any other day. No. And, you know, I, I've never been a recipient really of the generosity of strangers. I mean, I have in like little bits, of course, but the show of support and the kindness that we felt while we were there was very humbling and I just kept thinking well we don't need these 
things, right? Like <laughs> we're just regular people, but you know, it just, it, it started to give me a better sense of this whole other world, this whole other world where you can help other kids, you can help families through holidays. And, you know, all I wanted to do was turn around and give back to someone else, you know, right. so it, it really sparked something in me that but just to fast forward a bit, so we were now in leukemia treatment. So it was three and a half years of treatment. So the first month was really, really intensive for okay. him. As you know, you know, 98% chemo or cancer in his bone marrow. They really needed to get that down to less than 0% to know that it was responding. But what that meant, because he was already so weak to begin with, that first month was very difficult for him. He ended up needing a feeding tube because he wasn't eating enough. His liver was starting to act up. He actually stopped walking because of the steroids. Significant amount of steroids affect your muscle. But we knew that we just had to keep going, you know, and try to get through it. And so after that first month, we got a biopsy done and sent some cells out for testing actually in Cincinnati, I think. And that's when we found out at first that his leukemia was actually considered very high risk. So it wasn't. Wasn't that standard ALL that they thought? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he had a, a genetic mutation that I forget what it's called now. But it just meant that his, his cancer would be a little more resistant to treatment and it could reoccur. And so at that point, they kind of changed the protocol and went way more intensive, longer. So that put us at about 10 months of really intensive treatment. And as I was saying, at that point, I was pregnant and expecting our third child. So there were those times where it challenged our stay positive kind of attitude, but we really just wanted to get through that first intensive part. I actually gave birth in July and he was admitted to the hospital for almost a month in August for an infection and then just for some side effects of his chemo. So you can imagine I'm trying to take care of one child and I've got a newborn with me and trying to sleep and nursing. And we had to have a great support system and my parents and my mother-in-law would come and do the night shift with him. So I could do the night shift at home with with the baby I also had another child so my husband was you know sort of quarterbacking with that but what it did do is create a bond between him and her yeah. because he with her um, and I even have pictures of him in the hospital and she's a tiny tiny baby on the bed with him and he's sitting yeah. for her and I have videos of that which are beautiful and haunting at the same time but we got through that summer and I, you know, I finally got to sleep again and he got home and um, we were considered in remission in, in the yeah. fall. So he went back to school. And then at that point, we decided we wanted to give back. We had felt that generosity that Christmas and we wanted to not only celebrate that he was on the road to recovery, but also to be able to give back. So Right before Christmas in 2017, we had a huge party in a gym. We had all the kids from his school come and all our family and friends. And we had a toy drive. We had a toy drive for the children's hospital. Uh, we asked for monetary donations. I actually have pictures of him at the children's hospital with a big check and a pile of gift, gift to them. And that felt really good for us to be able to help those other families that were going to be there at Christmas, right? Right. Because certainly you hoped that you would never have to do anything like that again, that your no. those days were done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for a while, I thought they were. I really did. Yeah. You know, we were in uh, what's called maintenance treatment, which is basically low-dose chemo orally, you know, over the period of two and a half years. So although he was still a cancer patient, quote unquote, life felt really normal for us. Yeah. He was in school. He was playing hockey. We went on vacation. We went to Mexico. We'd go camping. We actually built a cottage as a family. And, you know, we were working, going to school. I really wanted to put that chapter of my life behind me. 
I didn't even want to be in that community, to be honest. I really distanced myself from that cancer community because I thought, you know what, that's not really us yeah. anymore. And in April of last year was the end of his treatment, 2020. This was just the start of the pandemic here, and it was very limited as to who could go in with him. It was only one parent allowed. But we went to the clinic because we still had to go to clinic every month. Uh, we went to the clinic and he got to ring the bell. I don't know if you're aware, but when kids finish treatment, they ring the bell. Everybody watches and you can video. I actually grew to uh, really hate that bell after that, actually. Yeah. That was just a false sense of yeah. hope for us. Because uh, in June, we were able to get his port removed. Again, everything was going great. We were done chemo. The monthly blood work was looking good. Uh, he had just turned 10. So we had the port removed in June. Spent the summer at the cabin in July. You know, he was at the beach. Having a great time, having fires. We weren't taking pills anymore. Um, and we really just, you know, pandemic aside, we were having a really great summer. As a, and then in August, we went for the monthly blood work again. And now they were wanting us to do it all over the phone because they wanted less people in the clinic. And so we went to the lab, got the blood work done, came home. And then his nurse called and said, uh, you guys should come in. There's something off in the blood work. We need to talk to you. And right away, I just went. Yeah. I thought, oh, my God, we're back here again. Yeah. So we went in and, and they confirmed that his leukemia had come back. But we stopped taking chemo pills in May. And it's August now, and it's already back. All of a sudden, now we're, we're thrust into that world. We just had his port removed. Now he's yeah. going to put in the next day. We're talking about admissions. All of a sudden, I went from, you know, this early feeling the first time of, you know, let's just get through it. Let's just stay positive. You know, there's this, this textbook. Let's just do it. Yep. And now I'm, I'm afraid, you know? Yeah. It didn't work. Yeah. So now what options do we have? You know, it's not textbook. Yeah. It's frustrating because as an aside, uh, September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. And, you know, we've done a lot this month to just recognize those kids and, and just appreciate all those stories that are here locally uh, with our kids. And it just reinforced how small of a percentage we were you know like there's 48 new kids that get cancer here every year in a province of 1.3 million people we were one of 48 which is a small amount yeah it is a small amount and then within that we were the small small amount of kids who have the very high risk burden and then we were the small amount of those kids that actually relapse and so you know it just reinforced for me how you know, whatever could go wrong for him kind of continued. And I'll touch a bit more on that after, because again, he just kind of had the worst case scenario for everything all around. Yeah. So what they wanted to do for him, because the sort of textbook stuff wasn't going to work, is they wanted to do stem cell transplant. Mm -hmm. So that's serious stuff. I do have a funny story, though, as just to take you back a minute. So when we went into that blood work, result and we knew it was bad news you know the doctor told us that his leukemia had relapsed and you know I all of a sudden you know started getting emotional and, and Nick just looks at me and he's like do I have COVID and I was like what are we doing to these poor kids you know? right right and then when no no you just have no, I said, you don't have COVID, but your cancer came back. He's like, oh, phew. Oh, my word. Oh. No, that's, no, that's, that's not a phew, actually. But, you know, for him, he was like, okay, well, we've done this before, Mom. So we just have to do what the doctor tells us and follow the plan. And going to the hospital, I'm used to getting pokes and all that. So I guess we just got to... Do it again and we'll be fine. Yeah, yep. and, and you know, he kept that attitude for the whole time, you know. Let's just do what the doctor says and, you know, we can't change it, so let's just stay positive. 
and he really tried to do that for him as well. But under underneath all of that, like I said, there was a lot of fear. And as we learn more about the stem cell transplant, what would be involved, it's risky and it's hard on little bodies. But you know, we we jumped into September knowing this transplant was going to happen soon. He had to do another month of chemo. So we're back at the hospital after two and a half years. We're seeing all the same staff again. And they all walk in, all these nurses, and go, I'm not happy to see you right now. <laughs> or I'm not happy to see you yeah. again. Yeah. You know, these poor people, they, they have this revolving door, I'm sure, of kids that they see more often than they would like as much as you know, you build those relationships. But, you know, he was still just trying to have a good time. One day, he ended up making slime with one of the staff. Because <laughs> he's still a little boy and he's still that playful kid, right? And he decided that he wanted to make burning noises with it under the blanket. And when one of the nurses would come to check his bandages, he would fart. <laughs> and then he didn't know what would happen. So we had this whole scheme, right? And kept trying to tell him, like, you can't, you know, you got to keep a straight face. Like, you can't let it on that, that this is what we're doing. Except that he kept, like, psyching himself out. He's like, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can. He was laughing so hard. And so he tried really hard to pull it off. But he was laughing at himself too much. <laughs> and he just had so much fun with that slime. And the one nurse happened to be one of the nurses that's super, super fun. And so they, together, took turns trying to make different noises. And, uh... <laughs> They probably kept that up for a good 15 minutes. So there was a lot of trying to have fun at the same time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he went back to school virtually online. So he was doing his classes from his hospital room. And he was excited about having a new computer. And he was excited about trying uh, to do his schoolwork. And, you know, we were just trying to make the best of our new yet again. And, you know, through that, I was trying to figure out ways to cope because I knew that now our options may be limited and we, you know, we're in a bit of a riskier position. So I had a really good therapist and she got me on to mindfulness concepts where I really tried to practice just being present in the moment. And I started a gratitude journal and I tried to really quiet my mind and stop myself from going to those scary places. And that really was a tool that served me really well then and is a tool that served me really well since as far as my healing is concerned. Anyway, this is a bit of a long, <laughs> long story for him. But we did get the transplant in November. Uh, his father donated a stem cell. We could not find a full match donor. So his dad was the half-matched donor of his stem cells. Uh, and that resulted in about five weeks in the hospital for us. By all accounts, the transplant was successful. His new cells were growing. They were healthy. He had kind of gotten through the worst of the transplant because with the transplant, you need radiation. You need really heavy chemo. You're basically emptying the bone marrow of everything. Everything, yeah. You're getting rid of everything. Yeah, it's really hard on those kids. There's a lot of side effects, but he got through it all. And we were able to go home for Christmas. So we went home for Christmas. And, you know, one of the great gifts we got, being a smaller center here, the Cancer Care Foundation is very supportive of the families. And they had arranged for one of the Winnipeg Jets, um, the captain, Blake Wheeler, to come and uh, bring us gifts. And and him and his wife came and was so kind. And he was so excited, I'm sure. Yeah, in his quiet, reserved way. Um, He was pretty uh, starstruck, I think. Uh But he got a signed jersey, and it was just such a nice memory for him. Because it was COVID, Christmas was very different. We didn't see family, we didn't have any gatherings. But he was so, you know, after transplant, they actually have to isolate kids for 100 days. Mm -hmm. uh, Because their immune systems are so immature and weak to begin with and so we knew we'd have to be isolated anyway so right in in some ways it was a little bit of a blessing right they weren't you weren't missing out because it just wasn't happening right no and after spending five weeks in the hospital it was nice just to be home with the family just the five of us but he was starting at that point to show some early signs of graft versus host disease which 
is the way essentially his new cells and his old immune system, I guess, kind of fighting each other. Um, They're having a trouble settling in, I guess, into the new body. And so that caused a, a lot of rashes all over his body, which for us was a nuisance for him. Uh, itchy and, and stuff but it's a rash you know but Christmas night he I remember again he came into my room late at night and said my stomach hurts my stomach really hurts and I just thought he'd eaten too much Christmas goodies you know after being in a transplant he hadn't really eaten a lot when he was in the hospital because it was so hard on his body so I just figured that he was just having difficulty digesting and getting used to eating real food again but it persisted and we went to our cabin our family cabin and spent a few days there and uh, it just wasn't getting better he's getting a lot of diarrhea and so they said you know what i think you should admit i was like all right back to the hospital we go and at that point they said we think he has graft versus host in his gut which makes it really difficult for him to eat so that meant he wasn't allowed to eat anymore he had to have all his nutrition through his pick he had more tpn and then they had to give him a lot of immunosuppressant steroids and different things to keep his immune system down so that that flare up would settle. But it wasn't really working. And again, that small percentage, right? You know, he was a small percentage of a, of a child who actually gets graft versus host disease because a lot of transplant kids don't get that. And then he was a smaller percentage of the kids who actually don't respond to the medication. So they were giving him all these immunosuppressants. They were having to give him adult doses even, and it wasn't really doing anything. So they said, well, maybe go home for a couple, go home for a bit, try to do a bland diet, keep him hydrated, and we'll see what happens. That didn't go so well. So we were home for maybe a week. He was just in a lot of pain. His stomach hurt. He wasn't eating. It's because he'd been on steroids for so long, much like when he was a little kid at six caused him to not be able to walk again so now he's 10 much bigger and that's harder and so we actually uh go back and i remember taking him to the clinic and going we can't do this at home it's just too hard but when i got there i was all stressed out trying to figure out how to get him out of the car he can't walk at that point and i went to go get him and i forgot to put the car in park so I ended up rearranging the car in front of me at the entrance of cancer care. And the guy came out and I came out and I just started bawling. Yeah. And I have a child and he can't walk. And I was just so, so stressed out that week. And yeah. the poor old man was like, hey, <laughs> are you doing help? And I was like, no. Anyway, the cars were damaged, but it was just this, I thought, oh, that poor old man. He was not a me that day <laughs> right so I'll try to fast forward a bit so that was the last condition we had that was in February yeah again still just being treated for his graft for post disease no progress no changes and we were ready to just live there for months if we had to we were going to try to work from there we were going to do the school thing from there we thought we'll just be on TPN you know the doctors kept saying it just takes time we'll write it out things all of a sudden changed you know, his liver function wasn't great. His bowels stopped working. So he almost had a bowel rupture. He had breathing problems all of a sudden. And one night I get a call from my husband saying, they're moving us to the ICU. And at that point, I thought, oh, God, this just escalated. Once you get admitted to the ICU, it's just a whole other, whole other animal. Meanwhile, he's, you know, aware of what's going on, but just a bit confused about why he's moving. And we were only in the ICU for four days, but every day something went wrong. First, his lungs were an issue. So then they put him on oxygen and that helped, but then that wasn't enough. So then they needed to intubate him. And then his heart was starting to look funny. And then his kidneys were starting to fail. He stopped passing urine. And the bigger concern was, his blood counts were dropping, like by the hour. Um, they transfused him all day long, and nothing was staying. And he was starting to bleed internally. And you know, they poke him for a blood, a finger poke, and it wouldn't stop bleeding because his platelets weren't working. And they didn't understand what was going on. You know, all of a sudden, just multiple organ failure. They thought he had this 
thrombotic microangiopathy, which is a bit of a residual issue from the graft versus host, which I think is basically his blood vessels were kind of leaking everywhere. And so they found a drug for that. And then they got a viral result and they saw that he had a virus, uh, the, one of the adenoviruses in him which is actually a virus that a lot of people have. It's almost like a common cold. living in this. But for him, because he'd been on immunosuppressants for so long, it was all over his body at that point. So on the last day, uh, they were thinking of putting him on dialysis. Because it was COVID, we couldn't have visitors. This whole time we were in the hospital with him for 11 weeks, we couldn't have visitors. But on the last day, I, I pleaded that they allow the grandparents to come. So they let my parents and my mother-in-law come. They came just in time. Before they hooked him up to dialysis, they got the blood work back for the viral blood work because uh, they hadn't worked at the blood work yet. Meanwhile, they called us back into the room and his blood pressure had dropped. And they said that uh, with the virus, the way it had taken over his body, there was no way to save him. And the doctor even said, he said, it all makes sense now why all these things started to go wrong. Right. This virus had been in his body. They took that blood work a week before he died, and they only got the results a week later, which I struggled with a bit. But they said as soon as it took over, there would be no, it wouldn't matter if we caught it on day one. No. His immune system didn't exist, basically, at that yeah. point. But, you know, they had put him to sleep that morning because we thought we were doing dialysis. So they needed to put another line in at that point, and he had six lines going. And we said goodbye. We didn't know what would happen that day. Every day we up, he didn't die today. But he didn't for three days in the ICU. But every time he went to sleep, I always took an opportunity to just say bye, just in case. Yeah. He just thought he was going to sleep. I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. And he didn't know. I don't think he knew what was happening. Yeah. yeah, he was so used to being in the hospital, tubes and blood and pain and doctors. You know, this was yeah. just more problems, right? Yeah. And so we were able to say goodbye, and then when we were told about the virus kind of taking over and that there was no hope, we were able to sit with my parents and my mother-in-law and ask him just sit with him. He was sedated at that point. He was stable. But he was able, we were able to end his life peacefully. Yeah. Which I'm so for. Yeah. To have been there with him. Just it us to be over. Yeah. For him and for us, it was. It was a long, you know, long, long journey. Yeah. It is. And that time in the ICU was just perfect. And you don't know if it's life threatening or not. And the doctors can't give you any assurance anymore. But they don't want to give up either. And. No, and there was just so many people on his side. Yeah. For him until the end. And I think they were grateful and we were grateful that we were able to come to that decision easily. It wasn't a difficult decision for us at that point. Right. It was like, my son was gone for that. Yeah. At that point, he wasn't my happy, active, sporty 10 year old. Yeah. On a gurney. On a, in a catheter, in a diaper, not being able to walk, in a, with an intubation, the cat talk, you know, it wasn't him. They said there was really nothing we could do, so they left us with him. He gave us all the time we needed, and it was peaceful. Still, you know, I remember when the curtain finally opened and it was done, it happened that his room was right across from the nurse's desk, and there was probably 20 people just standing there. Yeah. Everybody just stopped. Yeah. And it was beautiful. It was so respectful. And, you know, you could almost picture like the phones are ringing and people aren't answering them. They just stood there out of respect. All of his oncology team actually came in, some from their homes, our doctors and our nurse practitioners who we've known for years. And they came into the room and, and we all hugged, even though we weren't supposed to. <laughs> yeah. We all hugged and they were crying. And I couldn't believe these forces, these formidable oncologists that I have so much respect for that are so intelligent and they're sitting there crying with us. Yep. 
I was not touching. Yeah. We weren't just a file or a number to them. That made me feel it was a beautiful moment. And nobody rushed us out. And nobody, you know, made us feel like we needed to leave. Everybody gave the time we needed. And I remember when we were finally ready to go, I had to get buzzed back in to the unit to go get something. And I had, for the last four days, used that buzzer a million times. And every time I had to pick up and say who I was. And so I picked up the phone and I said, Mom, and that just hurt so much. Yeah. Because then I thought, who am I now? Am I still his mom? You know, it just... Yeah. But you are still Luke's mom. Luke's mom always and forever. I just couldn't believe I was actually leaving without him. Yeah. You know, I've been in the hospital for 11 weeks. November. I had bags and bags and we always had lots of stuff to keep us busy. And then I'm, I'm leaving with all this stuff in garbage bags. And no fun. Yeah. Hard. Hard. Oh, the hardest yeah. thing ever, yeah. But anyway, even in that moment, as hard as it was, I did find myself feeling that gratitude and trying to tap into the gratitude that I was trying to hold on to when he was sick and when it was so hard. And, you know, I was grateful for being there with him. I was grateful that my family could be there. I remember even, like, thanking the ICU doctor for everything she'd done. And meanwhile, she's like, you don't need to thank me. <laughs> I just felt so grateful for what everybody did for him, even if it didn't work. I just know they tried their hardest to save him. Yeah. yeah. Then it's, you know, morning during COVID. Yeah. So. I can certainly talk a little bit about what that was for us. Yeah. We can't, we couldn't have a service. At that point in time, we were allowed, you know, 10 people at a funeral. And if I counted heads, it was pretty much my immediate family and my husband's immediate family who, at a point, were already at our house. Yeah. Because <laughs> we just, you know what, COVID be damned, we're not sitting here alone. So we had invited our in-laws and my parents and my brother over for dinner and we just kind of had to be together right it was the extent of our socialization but that's all I really had the capacity for at that point anyways but you know for me honestly and I've been asked this question before I'm actually kind of grateful that COVID prevented us from having to do the big hoopla service having all sorts of people come to our home and come into our space because I was actually really grateful to do it alone and to have that privacy. It didn't mean that people weren't providing support, but uh -huh. doing it in a more distant kind of way. So, you know, we got gifts every day. Something would show up at our house, messages, cards. Uh, one of the teachers at his school actually made these little hearts. Oh, so cool. And all the students and the teachers were wearing them. Oh, I love that. And, you know, we just, we felt the support. We just didn't have to be in a crowd to do right. that. And actually, another really special thing that happened, because they knew, uh, Cancer Care knew what Jets fan he was, they did a tribute to him at one of their games. Wow. It was a... Um, Hockey Fights Cancer is a fundraising initiative that they have with the Jets. And they profiled two kids, one who's still living and Nick. And they talked about him and they showed photos and it was so beautiful. And we got so many messages after that from random strangers, you know, showing support. And I was just so grateful for that gesture and showed the team captain who came to our house and he had his head down, and I'd, I'd like to think that that made an impact on him, too. Right, right. This was a month and a half after he came here, you know. Right. We just had to figure out a path forward, right? And, you know, I felt very alone. You have, and others in the community have. 
we had been part of this cancer family community yes. for a really long time. And I wanted nothing to do with them. Right. Only nine kids pass a year is another stat that I recently came across. And we were one of those nine. And that means there are many, many, many kids who don't pass away. Yeah. And that's a great thing. Right. It really, but I didn't, I didn't want to hear it. No. It's it's so funny because I, I think it's probably both ways, right? You don't want to hear it and they don't want to hear it either. No. Because they're so scared that it could be them that they don't want to see you either. So it's hard in some ways, you know, it's so hard. And, you know, I had befriended people even when we were in the hospital that last time, other parents and even another family who had just had a stem cell transplant and... She admitted to me later that she did not want to hear about my story, you know, no. that it, it just makes it more real that it could happen to them. Yeah. But I did very early on have that sense of relief in a way Yeah, that I wasn't in that world anymore. I would give anything to have him back, but life without cancer was so much simpler for us, you yeah. know, as a my fears were gone it just it went from this highly charged stress state where you've got a child in the hospital and you're trying different treatments and you don't know what's going to work and then you're in an ICU to just being home yeah and it being quiet and in a way that's difficult for sure because you try to figure out what your identity is and what your purpose is now yes at the same time I just felt Really, yeah. My fear was replaced with a lot of other feelings, right? Grief and despair and sadness. But I didn't have fear anymore in my life. I didn't have as much uncertainty oh. in my, which I guess is a bit of a gift, right? Yeah, that's so funny because that's a that's a real difference between you and me. Because mine <laughs> was so sudden and tragic and completely out of the blue, that fear entered my life. And became such a part of it then because it was like, if this can happen in two seconds, then it could happen again. And so, so I think it can do both things. Like you were living in fear. And so then that yeah. got away. And I was living a totally oblivious, normal life until fear came in, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. I do completely understand that if this can happen you know, to one child, it can happen to another. And, and, you know, I do have those feelings, you know. But I think you were living with fear every day. That's just, that's just such the difference of when you, when it's something tragic and sudden and you're not living with fear, you know, I think it's just a difference. It's just a difference. Yeah. yeah. And what it did for me in a way, which again is a, one of those small gifts that you have to try to take for what it is. It does certainly make you appreciate the time you still have, you know, yeah. with us, right? I have two little girls. I remember I was saying to a friend early on, you know, because my daughter was only three at that point. I said, like, I still have a long future with my kids. My three-year-old, you know, she still needs me to help wipe her butt sometimes. Like, they're still yeah. little. <laughs> right. They need me. They need me. They need us as a family. And they still have, there's still a lot of firsts for me that yeah. I get to experience school, all those things. I still have all that available to me. Uh -huh. And I don't want that. I don't want to be unable to appreciate them and all of the joys and, 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 and the beauty that they add to our life. And so, you know, it really made me want to, as much as I feel my grief, and it hits me and it's always there. I really do try to live in a place where I'm grateful and I appreciate the life I still have. And I try to make the best of every day. And, you know, my girls are so joyful and so yeah. sweet. They really do lift me up when I need it the most. Well, and you do want them to have a joyful, happy childhood, right? You don't want it to now just be sadness for them. Especially yeah. when you, you know, when this happened, when you're three years old, you're so, so little, 
they're still appreciating Santa and birthday presents and just going on the swing outside and all of that kind of fun stuff. You just want to still see that joy in her eyes with all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we really, you know, I learned early that talking helps me. (laughs) So this is why, you know, doing a podcast is, is healing for me Yeah, to be able to talk, but also, you know, honoring him and including him in our lives as much as possible and building, you know, a memory room for him. It's painting rock, doing stuff with photos, tattoos, you know, there's, there's always, I'm always looking for something where I can do something beautiful in his name, create something and include him. And then in addition, you know, we just talk about him all the time. And my four-year-old asks about him all the time. And it's bittersweet, but want it any other way. You know, I need to keep his memory alive for her. And keep him as a part of your family, as a part Mm -hmm. of your family forever. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he is present all around, you know, in different ways. And, you know, we actually decided to do a fundraiser, a couple things. So he would have turned 11 on May. So that would have been three months after he passed. And I wanted to do something. I just didn't have a lot of capacity at that point, three months in. So I said, you know what, why don't I just ask all his friends and our family, people who would have usually bought him a birthday present to buy him a present, buy something an 11-year-old boy would like, and then we'll take all those presents and bring them to the children's hospital. Not complicated, didn't involve me going shopping for gifts, which would have just been heartbreaking for me. Yeah. And we ended up with 60 or 70 different things and gift cards and all Mm -hmm. sorts of games. And that felt really good. And that gave me a taste of how I can honor him by doing good things. Mm Mm-hmm. And take the sting of a birthday out just a little bit because it's hard. But if I can make someone stay better and if I can do it in his honor, then it makes me feel good. Right. And it brings light to something that would usually be pretty dark. And I think that's really, you know, the future for me in terms of how I can also include him in my life is by doing good things in his name. We actually did a fundraiser in the fall, or sorry, in August for Cancer Care Manitoba. It was like a virtual fitness fundraiser that lasted 10 days. And I made a team of 11 people and we called ourselves Living for Nick. Concept is we keep living for him. We have fun and we do good things and we laugh and we do it because we can. And he would want us to keep living. And we had t-shirts made and we took all sorts of pictures of us doing fun things that he would have loved. I jumped on a trampoline, which I hate, but I, <laughs> I knew he'd love it. And I laughed so hard and I yep. had so much fun and I said, thank you to him for that. Yeah. We played badminton and we played lawn games and we went biking and we raised $20,000. Wow. Um, yeah. That's beautiful so good and I thought you know this concept of living for Nick is you know I think something I can build on and something that I can make as a legacy for him and to show that there is life after loss and it's different and it's hard and it's not always jumping on trampolines and laughing but it can be sometimes and that's okay yeah if it can help another family who has a son who has cancer, maybe find a treatment that works, then that makes me feel good. Yeah. He would be proud of us for doing that. No question. He would be very proud. Very proud. So we continue on in his name and we try to be grateful for what we have and for our family. And I think of him every day. Many, many times every day, right? All day. And I finally, you know, I'm at a stage now in my grief where I kind of resonate with that statement you've made a few times now where I go, I can't believe this is my life now. Yeah. You know, yeah. this right after how I'm this person and I have a purpose and I have this grief that I carry with me and I have the story. And that's also why I wanted to come on the podcast 
because this is my story and I want to honor it and I want to share it and I don't want to hide from it because it's my truth. Yes. And I've been so comforted by so many other stories and I just hope I can do something for someone else. I know you have. I know you have. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.